0: Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Welcome. This is the I think third or fourth time that we've met in this little group. Uh, our guests. Uh, I'm Andrew Hilton from the CSFI, the Centre for the Study of Financial Innovation. On my right, but of course you can't see him, is Professor Peter Hahn, the Henry Grunfeld Professor at the London Institute of Banking and Finance. And across the table, you can't see him either, is Anthony Bell Chambers, who has many roles, but in his his most important current role, I think, is as Chief Executive of the Financial Services Negotiating Forum, a body which is... uh, Neutral on Brexit, but deeply involved in what happens to the city both in the process of Brexit and if there is to be a Brexit, after Brexit. First of all, I guess, we can't really avoid the elephant in the room. We are in London. We've just had the most astonishing election. It leaves uh, political circles in London in complete, I think, complete chaos. What's going to happen? Let me first of all ask Anthony. uh, What happened? Why did it happen? And what's going to happen?
1: Cranky. Well, I, I think, first of all, we must divorce the decision to have an election from the campaign and from the outcome, because I think there are three different elements to it. And I think the decision, if you look at the timetable for Brexit, better to get the election out of the way now, before the negotiations start, than later on, when you've finished them virtually and you may get a result that would be deeply damaging to the Because we process. would have had
0: to have an election when? Yeah.
1: Well, I think we would have had to have had an election pretty pretty soon after or just before the negotiations conclude?
2: I I, may interrupt. Yeah, 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 apologies. But to my knowledge, the way the timetable worked, and I thought this was Theresa May's ambition, was that she had to trigger the two years by the spring or March of Mm. 2017 recently, because that two-year period would then end in spring of 19. And the last election, which started at five-year clock, 2015, so the next election would have been 2020. And it was originally, it seemed to me, that what she was going for was that the two-year end-period break would happen and give her the best part of a year before the next election coming due. Yeah. So, you know, you, I know you've tried to separate, Anthony, but, you know, this concept of why she chose to go, was it... Um, yeah. Hubris, or, or strategy, oh, no or whatever it is, and all, all kinds all of this. things. I, I'm not <laughs> that, so sure. Uh, I,
0: I'm more yes. more forgiving of, of her. I think it was very, very difficult. It's turning out to be very difficult to to mm. put the, her ducks in in a row ahead of the negotiations mm. for Brexit with a majority of only seventeen. Mm. Of course, now she doesn't have a majority of anything. No, uh, so it's much much, it's going to be much harder now. But it was very hard with the Tory party that was actually split on whether it yeah. wanted to leave or whether, whether it wanted to remain. Mm. And a Labour Party that was I suppose uh, equally split but there were too many people from too many different sides sniping at her. Yeah. She was hoping to put the issue to bed, she but failed. Does
2: that, but does that come back to the, I guess the principal issue, there was a vote, there was a referendum, it's a it's a one-day decision, you know, how people voted on that particular day, it was 52-48. The winning side, the 52%, was clearly made up of those people who wanted various degrees of Brexit, whether it was political and economic, some people economic, some others. And now we're living with the consequence that it wasn't a huge majority, it was very confused as to why people voted. Uh, and. But probably the the most interesting bit is business generally is just keeps marching on.
1: Yeah, it does. I, I think, going back to the, the election point, I mean, I think obviously the campaign didn't back up the aspirations <laughs> that, that she had. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, she may not have got the mandate she wanted, but she got a mandate from the people. And that mandate was very different to what she expected or sought, but it actually might be a mandate. could soften the UK tone in the negotiations, make the whole process much more all-inclusive. And actually you could find, this is a bit fanciful, but you could find that at the end of the day there could be a better result than if you'd had a hundred plus majority Tories going in there listening to no one, fighting the good fight. And, and, and ending up with a hard Brexit, well, can I without even a chance of a soft Brexit. Can I ask you cases? that?
0: Because it seems to me that all the talk about hard Brexit or clean Brexit or soft Brexit suggests that that is in our own gift, and it isn't. Whether we get a hard Brexit or a, a soft Brexit really depends on what the European Commission and the European team actually offers us. They, Nobody wants Nobody, nobody on the UK side wants something which is a bad Brexit. We'd like it to be as easy as possible, but that depends on the other side, doesn't but,
1: uh, it? It does. And as, as I've often said, I mean, the, the fact is that we may have decided to leave the EU, but the EU decide how much we can keep of it. And then we have to make a decision. Do we like that deal or do we not like that deal? And if we don't like that deal, then we can exercise a right to walk away. But the reality is, the power base is now definitely with the EU, and the election, the outcome of the election, has enhanced their position, has strengthened them, and the Macron, the whole Macron, the Franco-German axis is stronger now. So that
0: too. So, is there any incentive for the Europeans on the other side of the table to offer us a better deal?
2: I don't. know. Uh, if you could say follow. I would say a better deal. I think part of the the other side we have to look at is that when this. The debate started, Europe was appearing to be fragmented, whereas now that seems to be be withering away. The anti-Europeans, whether they were in Germany, in France, uh, even starting to look a little bit like that in Italy, perhaps, uh, seemed to be generally in retreat. So Europe or the EU might be a little more comfortable in its own skin mm. and therefore not worrying about in- incentivizing splinter movements. So maybe that works out to, to our favor, but I think you're right. The, the big side in a trade agreement uh, has all the power, and that's no, I'm what not, they want.
1: I'm not sure I would wholly agree with that, in the sense that I think the curious thing is we're starting off with a very confused position. Not many of us know exactly what the heart of our negotiating stance is. Uh, we know pretty well what the EU stance is, but I think that will shift and I rather suspect that our stance will get stronger through the process, or shall we say clearer through the process, they may start to fracture even more because they've got the tensions between ever closer Union on the one hand and the devolutionary movements on the other. They've got the whole tension surrounding two-speed Europe, multi-speed Europe, all of which has, if you like, put East against West to some extent in the EU. And, And I think even more to the point, there are those economies in the EU who will suffer more from a hard Brexit than other economies. So that kind of member state differentiation
0: I think will re-emerge depending on the outcome. That's interesting because what Pete is saying is no, that the fragmentation which looked like a a really major problem a year or so ago ceases to exist now. The French have voted for a very Mm pro-European government. The Dutch before that voted for a very pro-European government. the German alternative for Deutschland has disappeared effectively, so Mrs Merkel is going to win a resounding victory there, so Europe is back on track. Those supporters who say that every crisis, the answer to every crisis is more Europe, appear to be vindicated. Mm-hmm. So at that sense, in that sense, what on earth is the incentive for them to give us a deal? Screw you, they can say to the Brits. You want out, you can have out, but on WTO terms, if that. We would, you're just simply walking out the door. We won't give you that deal.
2: Well, can we, cut kind of back? I think one of the issues that I found was difficult to appreciate in the Brexit debate was a whole thing around sovereignty. And I tend to look, we, we certainly, if we do not have to agree with the European Court of Justice as an example, that does give us more sort of sovereignty on certain issues at home. but. In the real world, sovereignty today is about the marketplace. You know, we want a varied diet, we want food that comes in, we want a choice of goods that we get from around the world, we want them to be as accessible as we can. And that's sovereignty that's pretty tough to, to change. And I think as we go forward in this debate, one of the interesting discussions that comes up is how much of the UK economy might have to still agree to European regulation, which is that sovereignty of the marketplace, in a sense, because they're bigger. Yeah. So in a way, what we've traded, if we go through with a the more extreme uh, Brexit regime, is we're, we're going to pay a high price, but the only thing that we've gotten is a, a sort of type of local sovereignty, but we've lost our ability to influence a, a well, wider. Well, a,
0: a, those are the circumstances under which we trade with the US, yes. they're the circumstances under which anybody trades mm. with the US and we've done that reasonably com- comfortably over mm-hmm. a long period. Yeah, we will be a taker of European rules to the extent that we trade with the Europeans. There is a, an argument, and I think Antony knows it very well, that is being put forward for something called voluntarism, that UK companies that wish to trade in Europe can voluntarily accede to European rules. Uh, This would be on a much bigger case rather than on a case by case basis a company would agree to that. Presumably going forward it would make a long-term commitment. I don't know if that has any legs at all. Well it it
1: happens in trading goods. I mean if you want to trade with another country you have to accept their standards of labeling and all sorts of other things like that. And and so I, I think there's an element of truth to this. But the complexity at the level of compliance is going to be enormous because you'd be complying and if you spread that, different sets of rules for different jurisdictions, I mean, it's going to be a total internal nightmare. So I'd, I'd, I can see the argument, I can see the logic of the argument, but I think how it works out in practice could be very much more
0: difficult. It's an argument that appeals to a lawyer rather than to a banker.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say even for a businessman, I mean, today, if you were... a uh, I don't know if you, I, I guess, I don't know anything about agriculture, so if you export lamb to the EU, as long as the UK's inspectors signed off, that you've met UK rules, you can probably do that. Uh, I get a wild exaggeration, but uh, do you have to have an EU person come over and ex- you know, inspect your lamb in the future, well they export it? And,
0: yeah. What about, um, looking further ahead, what a, Do we think that uh, Brexit is still a done deal as far as the Brits are concerned? Is there any chance that of a a second referendum, is there any chance that it's going to be reversed as a result of this? I I put this to you simply because it's quite clear to me anyway that the reason the the election was as close as it was was because the 18 to 25 year old demographic got out of bed and went and voted. Mm. And that was a demographic that didn't vote at the time of the referendum, mm. that voted now and that is overwhelmingly pro-EU. Mm. And one wonders, having let the genie out of the bottle, whether, you know, now there is this, if you like, almost a built-in majority to remain in the, in the European Union. Is it a possibility? Well, I don't think
1: not? anybody really campaigned on the basis of a reversal of Brexit. Now, I, I take your view, the unfortunate thing about a referendum, it's a decision against the facts that apply at the moment in time when you push yes. your cross in there, and they could change completely the next day with a completely different outcome. So their referendums are a bit flaky, but it's a straw in the wind. So nobody's actually challenged that. So what we're talking about, when we say Brexit means Brexit, what we're saying is, we're not talking about the type of Brexit, we're saying Brexit means the UK will leave as a member state of the EU. And it seems to me there's no change in that. Where the subtleties come in is to what extent is membership of the single market back on the agenda? To what extent is the customs union back on the agenda? Because of a stronger element of those who remain actually being able to shout
0: about it. There's also the issue, I mean I realize that the Liberal Democrats were almost wiped out in the election, but their election manifesto said they would have a second referendum Mm, on the terms of the deal that was finally agreed. Now, what I never understood was what what happened. What would happen if indeed that referendum said no? Exactly, it's an impossible
1: situation. Mm. Well, you, because then you would be faced with a hard Brexit, which is precisely the
2: yes or no Brexit. Brexit. Yeah, or no I, Brexit. If I put it slightly different way, so when we had the referendum, there were forty-eight percent of the population, uh, including me. I should probably put my hand up, that said uh, they wanted to stay.
0: Forty-eight percent of the people who voted. Of oh,
2: people who voted, okay. Yeah. Now I thought it was kind of interesting that in the election, the Liberal Democrats got whatever it was, but they were polling 10 percent, let's say. So the other 38 percent. They got 7 percent. Yeah, 7 percent mm-hmm. was a take. So you know, what happened to the others? Were they split? Did they, you know, how do we know? I think that there's a um, unfortunate fact that happens to all politicians after elections especially the winners, who will say everyone voted for me because I offered this, this, and this, or we offered this, and this, and this. And there's never an acceptance that perhaps a substantial amount of those people voted for whatever party or person because they didn't want to vote for the other Mm -hmm. side. And Mm -hmm. so the issues get muddled and we have interpretation. Lots of pundits make lots of money figuring these Mm -hmm. things out. So we don't really know a lot about, you know, how much Brexit played into it. And I I think that's it's tricky because I think for business, right now you've got to plan as if it's going to happen, and there's going to be no sort of resolution uh, or, or negotiation after. How long will it take? And that's creating sort of different incentives in the business structure, and certainly for city firms, I think there has been no change in their plans to march on and figure out where to Mm. move their operations outside the UK to make it work. Mm. And I think the the challenge that comes up is how Britain's smaller companies who are creative and otherwise, how do they deal with this uncertainty without Mm. the large sort of regulatory basis? I think
1: think the idea though that the electorate sort of uh, votes against what they don't want sort of thing Um, or votes for what they don't want. I think electorates are also beginning to crack this idea about, hey, democracy means we can call the shots. I think before it's been a very sort of placid two-party thing, I know we've reverted a bit more to the two-party thing, but right now, electorates are getting very good at putting Politicians' nose is right out of joint. I think that's healthy. And I, and I think the inclusion, like a 70% turnout, and in the inclusion of, of the younger generation taking democracy seriously, we may or may not be happy with the outcome. That's another matter. But actually, that is reinstating democracy as a driver of government, which is I quite absolutely, important. Absolutely.
0: But I would, I would really put on the table that the single issue that turned the election was university tuition fees. Which which is completely bizarre. But that was the reason that young people voted. It was the reason they didn't vote for the Liberal Democrats. And it's the reason that they did vote for Labour, because Labour promised, A, no tuition fees, and B, I'm going to cancel all the accumulated debt that you actually have, £41 billion. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Hefty
1: bribe. It's one you can make if you know you're not going to get into power as well. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, but, uh, But I also think, sorry, just for a second, I also think they found Corbyn's... Style much more attractive than Theresa May's style. It was much more sort of throwaway, casual. You know, if I was a younger person, I would prefer that style to, to It's to very nice to see style. that
0: raggedy old men, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, actually have a future. I mean, with the chance, then. Am
2: I? <laughs> well, if I if I thought about, you know, the, we're trying to int- uh, interpret younger people, but I think across the way, the hidden part of this is the social media effect. Mm. And the social media effect is extremely good at anti, mm. but not as much pro. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, we saw revolutions starting in North Africa. We saw movements and it's great, you know, don't do this. Some mm. company comes out with a product and somebody doesn't like some ingredient or mm. whatever it is that's true. You can rapidly, you know, find a whole mm. group of people to support it. But if you were to say, this, this is a great new product, mm. How much does it work the other Mm -hmm. way? And I think that's one of our challenges is that the quick um, side of social media and, yes, grandma and grandpa also have uh, Facebook accounts and whatever it is, so it's it's not just the youth, but attracts anti-things, but it doesn't support pro, and I think that's an underlying current in many of our elections. In
0: this particular case, I'm not sure I agree with you, though I think all three of us are too old to understand what was going on. But Momentum appears to have organized an extraordinarily successful Uh, social media campaign for Jeremy Corbyn. But it was positive. Vote for Jeremy. It wasn't Hmm. vote against Hmm. Theresa May. It was focused on, here's a guy with sincerity. Hmm. I mean, I have a a sister who lives in a six-bedroom house in Maidenhead, and she said she was energized by Jeremy Corbyn. And she said, you see what his initials are. And I was <laughs> stunned. Absolutely stunned. That's a bit a <laughs> of leap of, Let uh, dare me, I say,
1: faith. <laughs> yes.
0: Let me just move on to, to yes. the second issue, the French election. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've just seen an astonishing uh, performance by Emmanuel Macron. Mm-hmm. And En Marche, a political party that did not exist 18 months ago, is on track to take an, a two-thirds majority in the second round of the parliamentary elections next Sunday. What does that say about faith in human nature, faith in markets, faith in the European ideal? Pete?
2: Well, France seems to want a change. Uh, mm. How much change, measured change. Mm. I think he was promising a sort of Scandinavian model in, in, in the electoral campaign for president, but. Uh, it seems that there's an interest, but that France has always had trouble delivering. So have we seen a real change? Mm. Uh, it looks like there's going to be inability in Parliament to do that. But one of the frightening things is his campaigns has got, uh, while it's new blood, it's also got inexperience. Mm. And so how quickly and can he hold them together and can they pass things through? And will the electorate support some of the painful structural changes that France needs. And France has some really uh, sclerotic business Mm. issues whether it's uh, taxation on employees that that firms pay that's really anti-hiring, this vast protectionism of uh, various economic groups Mm -hmm. in the economy that needs to be broken down. Will they be able to deliver? Uh, It looks positive. I I wish them luck actually. But Uh,
1: but all these are features of this electorate sort of wave of out with the old and in with the new. There's a psychology at work within electorates now that want to see real change both in politicians and politics. And well policies. in
0: France they didn't want real change because real change would have been Marine Le Pen. They wanted a sort of smoother shinier version of change. But
1: change But young... I mean the same, the, 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 the messaging is the same from the electorate. This mm-hmm. is what we want. And, you you know, just coming back briefly to Brexit again, I mean, his predecessor, Francois Hollande, was saying, we must have a multi-speed Europe, otherwise, and I think he used the word, Europe explodes. And what's Macron's position? Macron's position is, yeah, Europe is in a very bad way, we want change, but actually what we want is coherence right the way across the political and fiscal sort of, domains of, of, of the member states. So he's driving, putting it together. It's a completely different message. Mm. And I suspect that message
0: might have enthused quite a few people to say, yeah, we want Europe to move on. Yeah. Well, we'll or see how far move on. Let me, let me ask, why haven't the markets responded more to either the British election or the French election? I mean, I find it, I find it puzzling. Uh, obviously, Sterling fell. But I would have expected, given that this was not a, this, the, the, such a tight election was not priced in, that sterling would have fallen quite a lot more, and sterling has bounced back, and the stock market was actually up. In fact, the FTSE was the best performer uh, at last week of, of the European markets. Mm. Why? What happened? Yeah, Anthony it, first.
1: It may be that the markets are saying a softer, more collaborative negotiation may result in a better outcome. So in other words, people are construing the election in a slightly different way. The markets may be taking the view that actually says, well, it looks like a bloody mess right now, but in the long term, this could be quite good for a better form of deal um, with, with with the EU. That may be an answer. And, of course, Sterling Falls are always <laughs> always have a, they have a side wind of benefit for a country. They do.
2: Well, I'm not sure that I think... I, I would say I agree that I think about a week before the election, there was really a new debate starting about how dangerous was Jeremy Corbyn towards, you know, the European mm-hmm. side? Maybe he ends up bringing some positive side to it. But I think one of the things that we've started to see now with the weakening that happened with sterling, and we perhaps to remember that sterling weakened for a bit, but actually did climb mm-hmm. its way back. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think we really saw the, the same effect that we had when we had a larger manufacturing sector in past mm-hmm. um, it, devaluations, if you can call it that. Mm. So what we got out of the Brexit vote was kind of a neat devaluation mm. without mm. having to declare it. We, we got one. But the effect wasn't as strong, and that's probably because we're a much more world-integrated mm. economy right. on the manufacturing.
0: We, we have a global supply chain, and mm. for that reason the, the British balance payments has continued to deteriorate, yeah. that, regardless of where sterling and is. And that's but, the big thing that
2: doesn't get yeah. discussed between the balance of payments and a domestic
0: Oh, we deficit. do have, we, we have three Ooh, big yeah. problems. Debt, the oh, deficit yes. and the current yeah, account. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, yeah. one tends to think, look at the UK economy and you want to jump off a cliff, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about the US. Uh, we haven't mentioned Trump, or I think you men- may have mentioned Trump once in this, this discussion. Uh, this is the FOMC, this is the week the FOMC meets. It is almost certain to raise interest rates a quarter point, even though most recent statistics out of the U.S. economy have actually been a little bit on the disappointing Mm -hmm. side. Where do you think the U.S. economy is going just at the moment, Pete?
2: The, The U.S. looks to be on, I guess, slow speed advance still. Trump hasn't really damaged the terms of trade with anybody yet. So let's hope it's it's yet doesn't happen, mm. but he seems to be there. The uh, some of the radical notions that he uh, proposed in his campaign, cutting off Mexico, etc., don't seem to advance, have advanced very far. Uh, if he spends more time on a tax cut, focuses on something that he mm. might be able to deliver better, uh, that certainly is a positive for uh, for business, whether it's a, for the U.S. deficit.
0: For the poor old deplorables yes. who voted yes. for him, mm-hmm. who are but, going to see yet another tax cut for the rich,
2: rich yes. and for corporate. for the rich side and and he's actually, he has proposed actually a, a substantial number of welfare type cuts to benefits, which his, his electorate doesn't seem to be as upset about and still seems to support him. So he seems to be uh, proposing uh, the benefit for corporate and wealthy, but not necessarily his supporters.
0: So he's just another golf club Republican.
2: Well, he gave them. The Golf Republicans
1: gave, wouldn't accept that,
2: of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he did. He did give them the social banner that he wanted. And, uh, yeah, but, but where's he
1: with all these cuts? Where's he going to get the money for
0: this massive infrastructure spend?
2: Oh, I don't think that will. Um, <laughs> where's that come from? Well, that doesn't seem
0: that. to be progressing very fast or very fast <laughs> yeah. in Congress uh, but you do think that um, is there agreement that the FOMC is going to continue the process of normalization I mean some of the the Fed governors have been talking about three more quarter point increases this year that's is that the general opinion and I would have thought
1: that must be the drift yeah but exactly when it how it happens and by how much each stage happens I don't know but that must be the
2: progressive drift. If you're a central bank. I think, in many of it, between the U.S., Europe, the U.K., Japan, they've almost run out of tools, Mm. right? And I think part of raising rates, particularly in the U.S., is for the central bank to get its tools back. Mm. Because if if there's a slight downturn a year from now, there's nothing to cut, there's no more QE you can do. So, you know, getting yourself a little bit of room to actually make a Make a move, and it's it's interesting looking at it. If they can get rates up to a little ahead of one percent, actually, then you know cutting them in half actually will have a material effect if there's a downturn. Mm. Whereas they, they they really don't have any gunpowder now,
0: right? And so we are agreed about that. You raised Pete uh, when, before we were, when we were talking before the, the, the program. You were mentioning uh, that you thought it was the, the deal between Santander and Banco Popular in Spain was particularly important as being a, an example of just how uh, the, res, the resolution and I forgot what
2: the... The recovery the resolution, and resolution directive. directive is going to what work mean?
0: in, 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 in yes. practice. What do, what's your well, view on that?
2: I think for a wider audience, this points still to, to problems in the European banking system. That's there, which is why it's such an important issue. So Banco Popular, Spanish bank, lots of bad real estate loans, also a big lender to the small and medium-sized business sector, which made it attractive in Spain, went through recovery and resolution, like in a lightning bolt, and was ended up being sold to Santander for a euro, and that was a decision Santander made that it wanted to buy it and valued that that a euro was worth the, the losses it would likely incur with it. But the real issue with the mechanism in European banks is that you've taken a problem bank, put it into a big bank, so you've made the big bank more systemic. And the supervisors and regulators, if you want to call them that, have avoided really what the recovery parts of the legislation was about, You were supposed to try and fix a damaged institution, and if a damaged institution wasn't fixable, then split it up and divide it among players in the economy, see what new could be born of it. But in a way, it's just been sort of like pushed in, and now somebody's more systemic. The, pre- the,
0: the, the previous um, use of the directive was over Montepaschi di Siena. Do you think the MPS, the treatment of MPS, was, was better or worse than the treatment of Popola? Because MPS, uh, the, the Italian government, was given enough space to bail the bank out and effectively to restructure it.
2: Well, you could, I mean, there, I, I would look at the Italian situation as uh, it's, it's tomorrow. <laughs> the Italian, I'm trying, is it domani, domani. domani is the word, but <laughs> the Italians have, keep trying to push it in the future, in the future, maybe, you know, growth something will save it. But they need a, a, a harsher restructuring in Italy that uh, is difficult to pay for. But the um, so MPS limps along. There's a few other Italian banks, more than a few really, that are, that keep limping uh, how, along.
1: How, how long? I'm using this phrase, boy. How long can you go on kicking the can down the road before? Actually, it's not the can that's the problem. It's running out of road is the problem. How do, you, how do you lengthen the road to keep kicking the can so down what, it? So
0: what do you think, do you, I mean, is there, is there a systemic problem in southern European banks that, that we are really just not, not addressing and show no political will to address? Well, I, I,
1: you may remember when, when the, the, the Greek problem was exposed and there was a lot of criticism of the markets actually causing the problem. And the reality was the markets discovered the problem and reacted accordingly. So it was actually the wrong way around. So I, I kind of think we have a real problem here that if we don't seriously grip this stuff now, however painful that is, we're kicking the can down the road for the next generation to deal with. And that's going to be a problem. And personally, I think there is another crisis around the corner, what it is, where it is, how it's going to emerge. We're now in such an interconnected world that you know something's lurking in the bushes somewhere. The last thing you want, to be, you want to have is to deal with a crisis and a few cans that are lying around in the road at the same time because, as you've said, yeah. banks are running out of tools.
2: Well, the, the central banks definitely, you know, their flexibility with interest rates. I think the commercial banks, uh, the challenge is parts of the European banking system, mm. not necessarily the UK. And with those banks... Yes, will they fail? I think one of the interesting aspects to try and understand is how much the European economy is probably moving away from reliance on banks, because mm-hmm. we are seeing good growth with mm-hmm. a weak banking system. So it, it's in Spain, and, and it's different by country, I think we have to really focus on it. The, the Spanish have been very good about cleaning up their mess and making things like mm-hmm. this happen quickly. I may not like the solution, I think it fails the... So really the test of too big to fail and making more banks too big to fail. But in, in Italy, yes, they, there is still a problem. There's still a lot of too many non-performing mm. loans in the system. There's probably the banking system is still way too big. Uh, how does it get get reduced in size? So problems, and there's all kinds of political connections in it mm. because individuals own mm. subordinated interests in,
0: in banks. I, I'm fail. curious, going back to Popola, though. that um, There were people who took a loss. This was like Cyprus. I mean, there were people who really came out of this uh, with their investment and their aspirations slashed. And yet there doesn't seem to have been, yet anyway, the political backlash.
2: Well, Spain has gone through this with, because they had a substantial amount of what I would call capital securities, but non-deposits that banks in the system it's much more typical on the continent, it's not really not seen in the, in the UK other than mm. historically in the mutual sector, but you could have walked into a bank uh, in many countries on the continent and somebody would have said, "Ooh, would you like a couple of extra mm. points of interest if you buy one of our sort of preferred shares, quasi-preferred shares capital modes. And so their depositors, widely spread, were also um, their subordinated yeah. capital providers. And in Spain, those investors have eaten a lot of dirt. Mm-hmm. And so it is more, there's more of a tried route with that. In Italy, that boy creates a, a quick fire. And I think that's what they've been trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And where they have done it, the political backlash has been really strong.
0: Okay, one last thought. What uh, should we, or what should the markets, what will the markets be looking at over the next couple of weeks? Anthony. Gosh.
1: Well, they will certainly be wanting to see more stability in government. Now, you know that's coming at a price with the support of the um, the DUP. Is, is is this is the UK continuation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I think as far as the UK government is concerned, markets will want to see more stability, and they will actually want to see a positive start to the negotiations, not a negative start to the negotiations. So, I think, and and probably the same works for the EU. but but, but as I say, I mean, I think. The problems of the EU, there are some quite big issues there about, as I say, fiscal, economic, political union. And sooner or later they're going to have to grapple with that and that's going to have an impact on the markets depending on what view they take about it. The US I think is, is in a world of its own with Mr. Trump, but I mean it's very difficult to predict what might happen there. I mean given that Trump survives um, full term, I doubt, but I mean if he does. Um we're gonna see a roller coaster because oh, he's d- gonna come up with all sorts of strange things, some of which will actually
0: his own party will reject. Yes, but he says an awful lot. If you look at what actually he does, he's not very far off the mainstream at all. It's just um it's it's covered in a sort of penumbra of <laughs> tweets.
1: I don't know, coming out of the Paris Accord. Coming you know, out of the Paris that Accord, That God. was a bit
0: more... No, of a... he, first of all, he didn't come out of the Paris Accord. He announced that he would. He's not allowed to even to submit his his decision to leave until 2019. And then there's a year afterwards. Oh, really? Right. In the meantime, U.S. emissions will fall. In the meantime, German emissions will rise because <laughs> of the absence <laughs> of nuclear power. No, no, no. That's all right, not okay. Terrible. Finally, no, the final look word. At
2: the, look at the, the U.S. Congress is going to have to think about whether they're with him or against him. In about four or five months, the new election campaign for 2018 is going to start. So, whole change of, you know, policy there, but will it change anything in that sense? I think the, the question you, you have is, you know, stability. Who's going to fragment? Anthony mentioned, you know, is Europe going to fragment? Is the UK going to fragment? Mm. And I, I think, again, I come back to the sovereign markets and all this. You know, if we didn't have Brexit, uh, a weak government in the UK might not be a bad thing. They, you know, the, the Belgians have gotten along for how long without it. There have been other countries that kind mm-hmm. of just not be, big changes, actually mm-hmm. let business get on with it because they don't expect anything. So if we didn't have Brexit, we have So the wild card is how the Brexit side plays out, negotiating can we, can't we. So it's pretty tough. I'd say uh, looking at the UK government after this election, it's hard to understand how the current, the existing minority government doesn't suffer factionalism. Mm. I think that's just a a part of what a minority government mm. is historically. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s and uh, it just everybody's gonna want to have their, their bit so factionalism.
0: Let me ask you a final question then. Six months from now is Mrs. May still the British Prime Minister Anthony? <laughs> yes. Pete?
2: Mm. I, I think I'd, I'd say that uh, it, her road will probably be, she'll, she'll be there longer than we think, Not, but it's a weaker and weaker road. Mm. It's, it's how long she can hold it until, you know, the challenges arise, and how strongly the challenges are.
0: Personally, I'd be very surprised. Um, But then a week is a long time in politics. Uh, Thank you to Anthony, thank you to Peter, I'm Andrew Hilton, uh, and we'll talk to you next week or next month. Thank you. Thank you Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about our talks and events at www.libf.ac.uk forward slash events. Want to get
2: involved? Contact us at podcast at libf.ac.uk.